Blog Talk Radio. Reality Radio Entertainment presents Behind the Curtain with your host, Kathy Barrett. I'm Kathy Barrett, and welcome to Behind the Curtain, a show about how we navigate down the not-so-yellow brick road of life. And life is something we shouldn't do alone, so I invite you to spend the next 30 minutes with me as I reveal what's behind the curtain. It's very hard to believe that 10 years has passed since the attacks of September 11, 2001. Seeing all of these images again being played out on television and documentaries or news clips has taken me back to that day as if it were yesterday. What I remember most about that is the heroic efforts put forth by the first responders. Their example of selflessness restored my faith in humanity after my trust and security collapsed along with the World Trade Center buildings. They walked through smoke and fire, risking their futures to keep ours secure. It was having a front row seat for me to watch the best part of humanity in action. When it changed from rescue to recovery, they searched for postcards of a memory for the victims' families to hold on to while attending countless funerals for their fallen brothers and supported those that they left behind. This left no time for them to mourn or pause or even begin to process what they were experiencing day in and day out, and not to mention the physical danger they faced in breathing in the toxins as they removed 1,506,124 tons of debris from that war zone. They removed that horrible image from the smoking fallen towers by clearing an area for us and giving us a space, an emotional space and a visual space for us to rebuild And their example of courage stimulated the rest of us in the city. New York was not the same. Our defenses went down, and stranger to stranger, our hearts were connected and beating as if we were one. And the heart that the responders displayed became a life preserver for all of us to build on until we could catch our breath and find our balance again. And so I dedicate the show to you. Our guest today is Jean Potter, who was on the 81st floor of the North Tower when the first plane hit. She is also the author of By the Grace of God, a 9-11 survivor story of love, hope, and healing. And her husband, Dan Potter, is also with us. He's now a retired New York City firefighter who at the time was assigned to the Liberty Street Firehouse which was at the foot of the towers and across the street from where Jean and Dan both lived. The book, again, is called By the Grace of God, a 9-11 Survivor Story of Love, Hope, and Healing. And you can purchase it by going to www.authorhouse.com. You can also purchase it at Barnes & Noble. So welcome, Dan and Jean, and thank you so much for being here and for sharing your powerful, inspirational story with us today. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us on. 
Now, this must be a busy time with you both as we approach the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Yes. Yeah, it, it does um, now. You know, we start to reflect again on um, those that uh, that died that day and, and friends of ours that, uh, that perished on uh, 9-11. Now, in, in your book, Jean, you write that, Dan, at, when you were a young boy, she writes about you that when you set your... You, as a young boy, you set your dreams into motion to be a firefighter. Explain what that calling is for you, for us. It was just a, just a calling. It's just something um, that I um, kind of remember back in 1968. I was at my grandmother's funeral, and uh, we were in New York City, and the, the um, I guess there was a, a fire call, and the trucks raced by the funeral parlor, and I was out there watching, and then just right there, I just said, you know, that's something uh, that I want to be a part of, and um, it, it would just kind of consume my life after that. And I think my father wanted me to be an electrician, and I kind of told him I don't, I don't think so. I had told him at a, a ripe old age of 14 that um, I'm going to be a fireman, and I'm going to be a fireman somewhere. And it's it's interesting, you know, the way things happen in life. You were you then started to um, collect fire equipment and you know, really become an enthusiast about it at that young age. And the postman who delivered your mail kind of noticed your interest in it and then tell us what happened after that. Well, he was the, the postman happened to be a volunteer fire chief for the, for the town. And um, he, he just would see the equipment that would be delivered. You know, we, I was collecting uh, fire helmets and uh, badges and patches. And uh, people would just, I would just write letters as a young young boy. And I was just overwhelmed with the responses that people would send me things. And he saw that, and uh, they started a junior firefighter program out in the town of Brentwood that I grew up in. And um, at 13 years old, I was, like, in my glory. That's incredible, and it's so great that, you know, he kind of really supported that love and passion that you had, really being a stranger to you. Yeah, well, you know, being a postman, I saw him every day, and then, you know, we, we went up went up talking, and like I said, he was the chief of the volunteer fire department at the time, and so um, they started putting a, what they call the junior fire department together, and it was an organization that um, we ran for many, many years after that, and I got in at 13 years old, and I stayed till I was 18. I was able to then join the volunteer fire department, and um, right there I met the great friends, and we said, you know what? This is this is we're doing this as a volunteer. It'd be great to get paid for this, and so we consolidated our resources and just started taking tests from uh, whatever career fire departments were offering tests. Wow. And and then Jean, you grew up in Brooklyn, surrounded by extended family, very close Italian immigrant, close knit family, uh, with a lot of strong women that you mention in your book and. Um, and then, but uh, knowing you, you also have always worked for very, very high-level executives, from presidents to CEOs, whether it was in fashion or the cosmetic industry, Wall Street or banking. So looking back on, on both that ex- those experiences, what do you attribute, if anything, um, to what you've learned from them to survive the events of that day? I just get being kind of organized or I, I, mean, I don't think my survival had anything to do with, with my past experience. I, it, it truly was. It wasn't my time. 
Um, but I mean, mm. I love the career I had, and I mean, it's just incredible to be working with the most brilliant men and women in the business world. I mean, it really, it was a privilege. Um, but I often thought that God had other things for me to do. And I think you and I discussed that many years ago. <laughs> I <just laughs> yes, we did. There were other things for me to do than work with these high-powered guys, you know. And then, so then you started your own kind of journey through this. And But you're, it's true. That was always kind of gnawing at you. And what makes your story so unique, both of you, is that you were both in the middle of the action that day, having a, a separate experience, both kind of escaping death a few times, and then the choices you made that were totally unconnected leading up to that day, unrelated things, ended up being really big factors in what could have saved your life during, you know, those moments. So, like, and what I mean by that is, Jean, you chose to wear flats that day because you had a lot of VIPs from headquarters there, so you knew that you would be doing a lot of extra running around and Dan taking off that particular day to prep for the lieutenant's exam that was coming up where you would be in Staten Island. And um, otherwise, really, you would have been the, probably the first responder to arrive because the location of the firehouse was, was basically right there in front of the, the Twin Towers. That That's true, right? Absolutely. It just happened to be uh, – I didn't take the day off. It would just happen to fall on my schedule. I had worked, um, first of all, I was detailed down to Manhattan, which uh, was kind of um, a rare thing because of uh, manpower issues that they have difficulty getting firefighters down there. Uh, and so my my firehouse that I was working in the South Bronx asked me to work down there, and um, I just started the detail. So I had worked the two days prior to 9-11, and then uh, my schedule just happened to fall where I was off that day, and that's where I went over to Staten Island to uh, take this prep course to uh, become a lieutenant, that um, the exam was going to be in October. So what was the focus of your life together up until the moment, you know, up until that day? What was, you know, what were you thinking, feeling, what was going on in your lives? How did, how was life then versus, you know, after the, the tragedy? Well, we just, you know, we really loved what we were doing and, you know, where we worked. I actually had a heel on, but it was a lower heel that day um, because I had I knew I had a lot of running around to do. We we were just going about our lives. Um, every day when I would walk down the block to our apartment in Battery Park City, I would say, I can't believe I live here. Um, and when I went to work on the 81st floor of the North Tower, I had the most incredible boss, and his staff was amazing, and it was almost heaven-like up there. Um, and New York City was our playground. Dan was at Ladder 5, and I would oftentimes meet him in Soho or Tribeca. I mean, we were just enjoying our lives. Our careers were very important to us. Um, and life was, was wonderful, uh, you know. And it just, that day, kind of everything that we knew that day, with the exception of our lives, was taken. You know, and by the grace of God, our lives were spared. But uh, it, everything as we knew it changed that day. Now, for 
those listening that don't remember the layout of the tower buildings or don't remember, let's let's set up the visual because to get to your office on the 81st floor, which was, again, a brand-new office, right? It was just renovated. You, you yeah. guys had just yeah. mm-hmm. shortly before then moved in. So you had to, you know, take two elevators, basically, when you worked on a high floor like that, correct? Yes, yes. I took one to the 78th floor where I would take another local to get to 81. And so it's 8.46. I know you were in in work earlier that day to to prep for the VIPs that were coming in. The first plane hits, and it hits on the 91st and the 97th floor of the North Tower. So what does that feel like at the point of impact where you are on the 81st floor? Can you take us through that? I'm sitting at my desk, and I'm debating whether to run downstairs to do some errands. Um, That was my routine. I was normally in by 8 o'clock that morning. I was in about 7.30. And about 9 o'clock, I would run down, do some errands, quick banking, get my boss's favorite coffee, because there are no lunch hours in New York City, as everyone knows. And I'm sitting at my desk, and I'm debating, should I stay or should I go? So what if they need something? And all of a sudden, this thunderous explosion rips through the building, and we begin swaying from side to side. I was literally thrown out of my chair. Smoke filled the air immediately. Things were falling from the ceiling. People were trying to regain their balance. The floor became involved in fire, but what came to me was, this is not your time. We are with you. Your brother is with you. I lost my brother in 1999. One of our associates yelled in a very loud voice, get to the staircase. Fortunately, I was right near a staircase. I mean, so it's like your intuitive powers really must be extremely developed and open to be able to hear that kind of direction at a time of extreme danger like that and when most people go into panic. It was just a a very loud message that I got. And you know what? I bet people... Other people were getting messages, I would think, but that was so loud and clear. Although my heart was palpitating a mile a minute, but it was just so loud and so clear upon impact. That was the message I got. And what is the mood of the people in the office then? How are other people reacting? Uh Actually very calm. Um, I must say there was no one coming from above us. Uh, the plane, did they say, went in 91, 92. There was no one coming from 82, 83. I've only heard of a handful of survivors from above our floor. My boss's testament, he described he had to go back to his office from the other that was on the other side of the floor from the conference room to get his cell phone. He was actually running downhill. That collateral damage was all around us. And uh, we were calm. Someone had said that a plane, a small plane, hit the building. Then when we got to the sky lobby on 44, we got there relatively quickly. All of a sudden, there was another explosion, and we said, oh, my God, what is going on? I was actually afraid to look out of the window, but out of the corner of my eye, I could see fireballs, flaming debris, uh, paper littering the sky, and we were somewhere gridlocked in the sky lobby. And I was coming down with one of my associates, and he said, let's go find another staircase. Fortunately, we found a good staircase, and we were able to make our way down. Now, the sky lobby is on the the 44th floor, correct? Yeah, there was another one, 44. Mm -hmm. 
on the 44th floor. So, Dan, now let's go to you for a second. You're in a classroom in uh, on Staten Island prepping for the lieutenant's test that day. So how how does the news of the tower attack get to you? Well, it, it just uh, abruptly, um, <clears throat> we're all sitting at our desk. We're, we're going over our test material, and we're kind of gauging ourselves, seeing, you know, uh, how well we are uh, preparing ourselves when, um, like in the library, you can imagine, just imagine someone come bursting through the door. There was two doors that uh, just flew open, and then um, there was 50 of us sitting in a desk, and a firefighter yells, two planes just hit the Trade Center. And, you know, naturally the room erupts, and everybody jumps up, and from um, from the, the building that we were taking our prep tests at, we could see across the water, and you could see that the two towers were flaming at that point. And that's where I quickly, I didn't have a cell phone at the time, but um, they, there was a phone that was available, and I called Gene's office. And uh, Gene's the type that many times when I would call that she'd pick up on the first ring, and the her phone went into the voicemail. So I said, okay, well, she needs to be evacuating. But the the point of, from my view, I couldn't really tell until I got a little bit closer where the impact of the plane was. And, and again, um you know, I didn't see any planes hit the Trade Center, but uh, I could see the tower smoking. So um, my race back through Staten Island, through Brooklyn to get into Manhattan, I was trying to figure out where the plane impacted the tower and try to uh, deduct whether Gene would have to evacuate up to the roof or if the um, the plane hit above her that she could come down the staircase. And uh, from what I was seeing, I thought that, that the plane had impacted below Jean, and I was convinced then that she was up on the roof, and I would get to the firehouse, and I had to work get, get with the team, and we would get up to the roof and you know evacuate whatever people were up there. Wow, that's that's extraordinary that you're doing that. Kind of probably driving a hundred miles an hour trying to get to the scene, to you know be going over that plan in your head. And what, yeah, what was well, it like was, getting back I, I, into the city? As I got into Brooklyn, there was a HOV lane for the for the buses, and I held my. Um, there was a police officer that was trying to stop cars from going into the HOV lane. I held my badge out of the window of my my truck at the time, and he just waved us through. And um, I, I was leading a caravan of some seven eight police cars in this little corridor between two cement columns, and we had to be doing about seventy seventy five miles an hour and. And then again, I kept peeking up to the uh, the trade center, trying to figure out where the plane impact was. And when you finally arrive at Ground Zero, what do you see? Well, I just got in. I was able to get through the tunnel, and I parked my car up on the West Street, uh, far far enough down that I knew, you know, we're going to be bringing fire equipment in there, and I didn't want to get it blocked in of any sort. And as I started running up West Street, as I got to about um, close to about two, two, three blocks away from uh, the Trade Center, I started seeing that the police officers and they, they, someone was starting to cover up the larger torsos of, of body parts that were littering, you know, well, that were laying in the street. And um, I was just trying to get past that, and I was cutting down one of the side streets, Albany Street. And again, there was just nothing but uh, body parts that were all on in the roadway there. And I just trying to be careful as I was trying to run uh, to get my get to the firehouse that um, 
you know, not to uh, run across any uh, body parts that were in the street. And were the, was there at that point still debris, debris flying through the air, and, and were you in danger of getting hit with things that were coming out of the buildings? Well, sure. There were still the papers dropping down. There were still uh, parts of the, uh, the the outside of the building that were dropping down. Um, there was there was debris that was still falling down from the uh, um, from the, the, the height of the towers, and that's that was the reason why I try to get as close into the firehouse as quickly as I can and start getting some equipment on, uh, just to protect my head too. Now, at this point, do you think that there's a shot that Jean's alive, or how how are you feeling about what you, you're witnessing at this point and her possible position in it? Well, I'm convinced at this point that Jean's up on the roof of the North Tower. Um, I always told her if there was any incident that ever happened in the tower, just come to the stairs and come down. But, again, looking up, I, I was convinced that Jean was up on the roof. So what I said, uh, as I put my equipment on, I was with uh, another firefighter, and we, we got our, our um, helmet, coat, and boots on, and um, we were ready to start across the street. I was going to ask him to help me. You know, I want to get to Jean up on on the roof and whatever other people up there. We ne- had no uh, idea that these, the possibility of these buildings collapse. And then, you know, just being firemen, we said, we'll get up there and we'll, we'll take care of business. We'll, we'll get a hold of whoever's up there. We'll evacuate them to safety. And in doing so, be, uh, just as we started to run across the street from the, this far, like, like you said before, that's right in below the Trade Center, I stopped uh, just to grab a tool. And I turned around and I told this fellow, his name was Pete, uh, I said, I'm going to grab a tool here, and um, he just kept running. I was able to grab the tool. I went to catch up with him. As I ran out of the firehouse, there was a uh, another firefighter standing there, and he was looking up at the, the tower, and he just kind of shoved his, stuck his arm out and then uh, blocked me from, from uh, getting out of too far into the street. And he says, uh, here it comes. And uh, with that, I looked up quickly. And it was a south tower starting to twist and uh, implode, start to come down. And uh, Pete was a little bit too far far into the street to um, to start to seek any safety anywhere. And at that point, there was a uh, I dropped everything, and there was an Asian gen- gentleman laying on a sidewalk with a broken leg. He was hit by a plane part. I found out later on, and I just grabbed him back into the firehouse and. Uh, just as far as we can go in until we start getting blasted and uh, thrown down and then uh, kind of covered in, uh, you know, they were saying there was debris from three to six feet inside that firehouse that we were getting covered with. Oh, my God. And I, I understand from Jean's book that you were kind of like behind this tiny little three-foot wall. And even with all of this debris coming, you know, past you miraculously, you both survived that. Yeah, it, it, all the debris just came flying in, and um, just all I could really do is protect my face and um, lay lay almost on the ground, you know, behind this little wall. Um, and I covered the Asian gentleman with my legs as best I could, like his his uh, upper torso and face. And it just just things just rocketed through that that firehouse. It was like a wind tunnel of just blasts of debris. Blew out every window in the firehouse. It blew it. It blew uh, steel doors inwardly, and it just the thrust of uh, all the force from the tower coming down, and it basically landed in front of the street of the firehouse, and, and all the debris shot through. And and what what are you thinking and feeling in that moment? 
that that moment, um, I was just I wanted to. Get, I had to get out. I I couldn't breathe. It was like um, feel feel like um, woolen socks being shoved down my throat, and and you couldn't just breathe. You had to like almost force yourself to swallow. And the the Asian gentleman was kind of pointing, and he all kept saying was out, out, out. And I said, we're going, we're going to get out of here. We'll get out. And I just I dragged him to the kind of the back of the uh, the firehouse, and um, I saw some uh, you know people starting to come out of their their hiding spots or whatever place uh, sought uh, safety. And um, I saw these paramedics come down. I told them to take care of this uh, this gentleman. And then that's when I could see a little bit because everything around me at the time was all black, but the smoke I started lifting to would become a little bit grayish, and it was so quiet. But I could see that the South Tower was down, and just there was a in front of me a six, seven story just molten, twisted steel that was still smoking, and I couldn't believe that there was a South Tower. But behind, I could still see the North Tower, and I still said, "Okay, well, Jean's up on the roof there. I gotta." Well, I got to get over there to her and, and you know try to evacuate her at this point. I, I'm I'm just so moved every time I read this book, which I've read several times, or hear the story just about your heroic efforts and and just you know the ordeal that you both had to go through, um, just worrying about each other and you know where each other was and and what you both were doing in addition to just surviving the moments. Um, Jean, going back to you for a second now, you left your bag in the office, right? So you have no cell phone. You have no way of contacting or calling Dan. You must have been worrying about him as you're making your descent down. Well, the strange piece of this is, is, you know, I'm a fairly intelligent person, but my mind, in my mind, he is still in Staten Island. In my mind, he's safe. He's not there. He's not going there. It's like I... It's like God had programmed me to just walk in a different direction because if I thought about him arriving on scene, I would have certainly gone to the firehouse and I would not be here today. I mean, yes, I know I was in a state of shock, but I kept thinking he is okay. He He's not here. I mean, it's as bizarre as that sounds. It's like, I mean, the hand of God was with us. That's what kept me walking in a different direction. And you also must have an incredible, incredible connection to each other because you can kind of just, you know, innately feel you were feeling what to do. Those feelings were kind of moving you to make the steps that you did and the choices that you made, which is just really amazing. And Well, let me ask you, Jean, you're now down on the 20th floor. You still Is the mood changing after the plane hits the South Tower? Are people starting to panic more? What what's happening for you now still in the stairwell? There was really, I never had a sense of panic. Um, in the 20s, we started seeing the firemen come up, one of whom was Vinnie Giamona, Lieutenant Vincent Giamona, who Dan used to drive at Ladder 5. And I grabbed his arm. I said, Vinnie, be safe. And I will never forget the look on his face. Um, he left behind a wife and four daughters. He would have been 40 years old that day. Um, there was a sense of relief when we when we started seeing the firemen come up, like, okay, they'll take care of this. Uh, but as as we were making our way down to lower floors, 10, 9, 8, obviously it was getting smokier and warmer. I just felt a sense of urgency, and I started 
like yelling at people, let's go, move it, move it. We're almost out of this, and it's very out of character for me. But I felt like the clock was ticking. I felt I had to get out of there. And what did your body feel like walking down? I mean, you've always been in shape, but walking down 81 flights of steps in an hour, I mean, what, what, what it, you know, how did you feel physically at this point? Well, you, you really, you're running on adrenaline, and so you really you don't know how you're feeling you're just running totally on adrenaline but i know for about until that that following sunday 9/11 was tuesday my legs were very very stiff until sunday and when i tell you i probably lost 10 pounds overnight i mean doing the coming down 81 flights i i just recall the next night when we went to get some clothing putting on a pair of jeans that just totally were huge. I mean, you you just go into, I don't know what state your body goes into coming down 81 flights of stairs and the stress and the trauma of it. But it was it was really it was an incredible thing. <laughs> then I had a rash for like months. It was just it was just it was kind of rough on the body and the mind. But again, we're so blessed. We're so blessed. Yeah, I, I'll say. I mean, then you get down. You finally make it down to the bottom. At this point, it's like at 9.55. And the security people, you write, are screaming, run, run, run. So what happens for you then next, Jean? Mm-hmm. They were actually in the concourse underneath the building. They couldn't let us out, like, through the lobby because of all the devastation and everything falling, plane parts, as Dan was describing. People were jumping. Um, so they had to bring us underneath, and that's where this human chain of security workers, we had to follow this human chain of security workers. And the concourse was total devastation. Water was pouring from the ceilings. All of the glass windows, the storefront windows were blown out. I was walking in, like, ankle-deep water and glass. And I got out at 9.55, looked at my watch, sensed flaming debris all around me. A woman stumbled in front of me. I gently helped her regain her balance. And I walked one block, saw one of our doormen, and I said, Richard, what happened? And he told me we were under attack. That was the first time that I knew it was a terrorist attack. And I turned around and I saw both towers flaming. And it was uh, a, a sight I will never forget. And I continued walking down the block. And at 9.58, that's when the South Tower be- began coming down. All of a sudden, I hear rumbling. And you think you're okay because you're out of the building, but then it, it, it was happening all over. Oh, my God, I'm not out of this yet. Maybe I am going to die. Which way am I? is this building going to fall? I mean, after coming down 81 flights, how can I outrun this thing? And fortunately, a police officer pulled me into a subway station. Church and Day Street subway station was right there. And that was also pretty horrifying because you're thinking, am I going to be buried alive? Uh, it was really incredible and there was a, a, a complete devastation in the subway station All, the damage underground from those buildings being hit was incredible and in that 12 seconds it took for the building to implode so they say it, it could have could have been an hour it was so surreal but as soon as that the noise and all that debris came rushing into the subway station as soon as the noise stopped again my voice said outright meaning get out of here make a right and I got out, made a right, and I just asked people, where are the towers? Are they behind me? And they said yes. And I just started walking 
and made my way to, uh, to Chinatown. I was walking in gray snow. I was in the gray clouds. Dan was in the black cloud. Mm. And we're going to take a short pause um, to honor the victims, the innocent people who lost their lives in the attack on of September 11th, both in New York City and the Pentagon and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. All the people, all the innocent souls who went to work or boarded a plane, never thinking that, them, that when they left home that day and their loved ones, that it would be for the last time. We honor your memory. This is Stolen Love, uh, which was written and produced by Andy Parrott and Wendy Starlin.
Hi, this is Kathy Barrett. We're back at Behind the Curtain. Our guest today is Jean Potter, who was on the 81st floor of the North Tower when the first plane hit. She's written a book about her experience called By the Grace of God, a 9-11 survivor story of love, hope, and healing, and her husband, Dan, now a retired New York City firefighter who was assigned to the Liberty Street Firehouse during that day. And we're back. Gene and Dan, what a story. My God. I mean, it's it's amazing. Now, Dan, getting back to you, you're both of the towers. Where were you when the second tower collapsed? Well, after the first tower had collapsed, <clears throat> I was going through the uh, next building over from the firehouse and trying to make my way around to the uh, all the rubble to get to the um, to the north tower, and um, I was doing so. Uh, I ran into people that were um, injured and hurt in this this building because it was all glass front and all it was right right in front of the the south tower that came through there and hurt these people, and they were kind of walking zombies. And here I was tested to being a fireman and and now being a husband. I, I need to get to my wife, but they saw me as a fireman. And I had to take care of these people quickly, and I just kind of um, marched them to the back of the building, and they were crying, and they were bleeding, and they pointed to a school nursery that was heavily damaged, and I, I looked through there real quick, but the, the children had already evacuated and were someplace safe. And uh, I, after I moved them out, I, I just needed now, I needed to get back to uh, the business of getting to Gene up on the roof, and I came outside, and I met a, a an old friend of mine that I haven't seen in almost 20 years, and uh, he's a fire marshal, and he saw my helmet, and uh, he said, uh, my helmet has the, the number 31 on it for the ladder company I was assigned to. And he goes, uh, 31, he says, are you okay? Are you, you all right? And I look at him, I said, Mel, it's, it's me, Dan. And he, uh, he goes, Dan, he, he, didn't, he didn't even recognize me. And um, I said, Mel, I says, uh, I got to get the Jean. She's on the roof of the North Tower. I says, you know, can you uh, can you give me a hand with this? And as we were discussing this real quickly, and he agreed, let's let's go. A police officer comes running by, and he has radio contact with the helicopter that's above, and he doesn't even stop to tell us, but he yells to us as we're running by, the North Tower is coming down any second. And uh, just as he said that, you could hear the the start the the cascading boom boom boom. And the, as a, and we're right below this tower at this point, and you could just feel the r- the rumble, and you start the sensation, the thunderous explosion start coming down on top of you. And uh, Mel kind of turned to run. I said, "Don't run, Mel. Come with me." And we just kind of hunkered up against the the front of the building, and we just lay there in an upright fetal position. And I just remember holding onto my helmet and being shoulder to shoulder with Mel. And as the tower just came down, and, and the roar of almost like a freight train that's going to roll right over you, just the louder and louder and louder, so deafening. And then all of a sudden, that you expect, okay, here we, here it is, because we're getting hit by all little, uh, by rocks and blocks and things like that. We expect, okay, here comes the big hit, because now that the the uh, the thunder's right over your head, that all of a sudden it stops and it's quiet, and the building had come down. And now it's eerily all quiet and black again. And we're looking, we can only just about see each other. And we, we said, let's get out, let's crawl out to the street here a little bit. 
And as we crawl out to the street, um, I kind of scratch the surface because it's all now like uh, gray, gray powdery uh, snow. And I scratch the street surface. I say it's black, black asphalt. I said, no, we're in the street. I said, let's just get out so, so that we can breathe. And we crawl right upon these. There's three or four cars that are flaming, that are, have a, just a robust flame coming out of it that you couldn't even see. We almost crawl right up into the, into them because of the black, dense smoke was all around us. And I said to Mel, I said, I said Mel, Jean was up on a roof. I said, where do I find her? I got to go find her. I don't know where she is. And uh, at that point, he was upset because he wanted, there was a fireman that he knew that were inside the building. He wanted them to start looking for him. And we just both kind of parted. And I said, you know, I got to go find Jean. I don't even know where to begin to start looking for Jean. And from that point, is kind of um, where I walked back home, the two blocks away, and uh, um, thought maybe that uh, Jean was able to make it back home if she if she got out, that uh, she would probably have gone home. Wow, I mean that's that's really incredible that you could even in that moment get to that place of hopeful thinking, you know, experiencing the collapse of both buildings. You know, just having the information that you you had, it's it's amazing to me that you still held out hope. I mean, I I would have in in your place, I would have been a total pessimist at that, that point that and really the, felt that was going to be the deciding point that I said, all right, you know, perhaps if she did get out, and that was how I was thinking, perhaps if she got out, then she we would probably walked home. You know, being only two blocks away, and I walked. Mm. I did walk back. I do remember getting a little Snapple, something to drink, from that uh, was laying on the sidewalk. It was, you know, because it was broken machines and things like that. And I do remember walking back to our, our apartment, and again walking down the street. I, I saw the doormen out there, and they were like, "Fireman, do we have to evacuate? What should we do? What should we do?" And I and the, all the doormen know me, and I said, "I said uh, his, his name was Arturo." I said, "Arturo, it's me, Dan," and he just had his look on his face like, oh, my God, I don't even, you know, recognize you. I said, Arturo, did Gene come home? Think, did Gene come home? And he says, I didn't see her. I didn't see her. So, again, it's now it's starting to resonate with me that, you know, maybe she didn't get out. And I climbed the, the, uh, to the ninth floor because all the electric was out at this point. And I climbed to the ninth floor, and I knocked on apartment door because I left, left my keys and, uh, you know, some valuables back in the, in the firehouse locker. And I, I remember knocking on the door, and there was no answer. And that's where it hit me. And I said, my wife's dead. And I just kind of collapsed and had an emotional moment in, in the hallway, and right outside our door in, in the, the black hallway. Wow. Um, and then the phone rings while you're there this time? Well, before that, I went back downstairs and I sat on his bench, and I started to mm. think. I needed to collect my thoughts. I needed to just figure out, well, what am I going to do at this point? How am I going to? What am I going to tell her folks? Where do I start mm. searching? We, you know, the, the the field is over 17 acres of debris. These towers mm. were each an acre big, you know, just in the footprint of itself. And and with these towers, I mean, so tall that there was six, seven, eight stories of rubble. Now, between the two towers and 17 acres, so I'm thinking to myself, where do I even start to begin searching for her? 
And I was sitting on this, this bench, and that's where this this fellow took my picture. And I, I kind of told him, you know, this, this is not the time. You know, can you move on? And I realized, you know, I need to get back into my apartment. And um, I saw the um, the custodian, and I asked him, I said, you know, can you give me a give me a hammer and a chisel, and I'll do what firemen do. I can, you know, get through the lock on my door and get inside my apartment. And that's when I climbed back up to the ninth floor. He got me the hammer and a chisel, and and in the darkness, I forced the my door open, and just then the phone rang. We were still able to get in, incoming calls, and it was one of Jean's aunts, and she was very upset on the phone, wanting to know where Jean was, and I just kind of had to shut her off easy, you know, just tell her, i, I got to go find Jean, I don't know where she is, and she was, you know, very upset, and I hung up the phone, and as soon as I did that, the phone rang again. And it was my dad on this, this time, and I pick up the phone, and I said, Dad, I'm okay, I can't find Jean. He goes, I know where she is. I'm like, oh, okay, where? Where is she? He goes, you know where the Chinatown Firehouse is? I said, of course, Dad, where is she? She's at the Chinatown Firehouse. So with that, I, I just I told uh, Virgil, I said, oh, we know where Jean is because they all knew Jean. And I was able to relock the door, and I ran down those flights of stairs, the nine flights of stairs. Like um, I didn't even touch any of the stairs going down. And I ran to where my car was parked. You know, it wasn't in a blocked in or anyway, and I was able to get into my car and then race around to the Chinatown firehouse where Gene and I reunited. Wow. And Gene, t- talk to us about that moment for you when you see him. Well, again, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to walk in in civilian clothing. I'm still my brain. I'm thinking, okay, he's coming with his civilian clothing on. And in he walks in his bunker gear, covered, and his eyes were blood red. There was, there was just blood in his eyes. And I looked at him. I said, where were you? And he said, you don't want to know. And we hugged, and it was just so surreal. And, I mean, and the fact that we were reunited so early in the day and that he was in the house to get the phone calls, that I was able to make a phone call from Chinatown that got out because it's very difficult to make calls out. I mean, we just really, we were so grateful that we survived and were able to reunite so early, you know. It's just really incredible. I mean, as many times as we tell the story, it's just, I really, it's just so incredible. We're so blessed. Yes, you are very blessed, and it it is an amazing story. I mean, it just, it, it moves me to tears every time. You know, I, I hear it myself and I, and I think about it. And thanks to the generosity, as you were kind of walking through Chinatown, wasn't there a gentleman that kind of, you know, invited you into his home and you were able, that's where you were able to have access to a phone or? Yes, yes. I thought yes, I read something friend, about that. Um, my friend Jamie Gong, who, who now lives in Hong Kong, um, he asked me, as I was walking down the block, if if I needed something. And I said, just would you, I need a phone and a bottle of water, please. I was I was afraid to go into his home, though. I was not in my right mind because he invited me in. So he was so sweet. He brought out a phone, a bottle of water, and he brought a chair that he put on his Aww. And he actually has, he has me on film. He has me walking down the block all covered with debris, with this look on my face that is just really incredible. And I, I asked him as I was working on the book recently, like Jamie, why did you 
stop me? He said, well, you, you were all alone. You weren't carrying anything. And, of course, I was a sight. And, um, you know, how sweet he was to offer his assistance. And I, there I was able to call Dan's firehouse in the Bronx that he had just transferred to. I told him, I'm okay. Again, he's at school. He's in Staten Island, still thinking he's in Staten Island. And then uh, Jamie took me to the Chinatown firehouse, engine nine, ladder six, because my husband always said in the event of an emergency, just go to the nearest firehouse. And I walked in and told them who I was, where I was. And I, I, I felt like I needed to do something, so I, I started answering phones in the house watch. Um, calls were coming in from parents and spouses about their their farm and their loved ones. Uh, and then, then the boys started coming in on recall, and I remember just being horrified watching them put their gear on to go down there because I had just come from there, and I was like, oh, God, I, just, I was just so afraid for all of them. Then a couple walked by the firehouse with a phone, a cell phone, because at that point we, were, we could not get called out anymore. And I said, you know, when I saw it on television in the house watching it, my family's going to think I'm dead. I need to get word to my family because they are not going to think I survived this. And uh, this, this couple came by and she said, my phone will work. And I was able to call my parents in Pennsylvania, tell them I was okay, call Dan's parents. Once again, he's in school at Staten Island, so that's how that phone call thread worked. Again, what a blessing that this woman came with the only phone that would work in, in New York City. I mean, it, it's incredible. It really is incredible. There, there's just a lot of miraculous things that happened to you both, you know, uh, during the process that process of that day. And that's why your book is so amazing. I mean, you can't even make stuff like this up. It's just so incredible how... Uh, things just, you know, happened and and how little, like I going back, you know, how the little choices that you made prior to this day had such a major impact on, on both of you surviving that day. And to think that at 8.45 in the morning when the first tower was struck, that by 10.28 both towers had collapsed, that's not a lot of time. And with the communication issues that uh, the fire department was faced with and being a logistical nightmare in itself on top of that, the outcome could have been a lot worse if it were not for the heroic deeds of regular citizens and the men and women behind the rescue efforts. I mean, just extraordinary, the the humanity that came forth that day out of such a, a horrendous situation. I mean, there, there was a lot of light that found its way through for the for us that were not directly impacted by what was going on, but we can hold on to, you know, it gave everybody hope. So this story is really, really amazing. And now, okay, so you're together, but you really this is this is only the beginning beginning of it because you live in Battery Park. Now, you know, you're you're out of a job, Gene, basically, because, you know, your company went with the tower collapsing. And your apartment faces the towers. And so what, what's going through your head at this point? Where do you go? What do you do? Well, we we came up to Pennsylvania just for the overnight uh, to, to shower and clean up. Then we went back into the city on September 12th, which was just really incredible. Um, I mean, every, Battery Park City was 
city was on lockdown, but again, because of Dan's shield, we were able to get in. And as a civilian, having survived it, I probably should not have witnessed what I witnessed also on September 12th. It was just, you could feel the sole energy of 3,000 people killed. They were lining our streets with the beams of the towers. I mean, we were walking in ankle to knee deep debris just to get to the building of pulverized concrete, baby carriages, shoes, water bottles, papers. It was incredible. I mean, we approached the building that was totally blackened out. Our super was sitting in the front of it as a sentinel. We got some things from the apartment and then, you know, made our way to Midtown, went to a hotel, had to be evacuated again, and ended up in the park lane. I had actually went to work like three days later because Bank of America had an office on 9 West 57th Street where they eventually set me up because our contingency was in Secaucus and I could not, I made the trip once, it was real hard because we couldn't get home for about three weeks. And it was it was very difficult. Um, I mean, I, I did go back to the bank and I, I when we moved that December, we moved to Westchester. I commuted until August of 2002 when I resigned because it was really very stressful. We had so much post-traumatic stress. Dan was injured. He had to retire. He was told he had to retire. It was, um, it was, you know, it was like scrambled eggs in a pan. But the grief that we were experiencing from all the people we know that were killed and, you know, the post-traumatic stress, I mean, we just, I'm so grateful that, you know, God pulled us through. He pulled us through our darkest hour. He truly did. And if he could do that for us, he could do that for anyone. And, um, and both of you, because you kind of went through the same experience separately, that became kind of a therapy for you through the aftermath of, of 9-11, correct? Yes. Yes. They say the best um, therapy for post-traumatic stress is talk therapy. And we would talk about it. And because I wasn't with my group, I didn't receive the counseling they did. And Dan was um, on, he was on, uh, he was, were you on sick? Sick for a while. They, they put him on, uh, mm. he was out because he was injured, so he wasn't, and everyone he knew was killed. So it, um, it was scrambled eggs in a pan, I refer to it. But again, we are so blessed, so blessed. Uh, let me ask you guys, because we're about uh, just about five minutes to the program, can you stay on a little longer? Or Because th this story is so massive, we can continue on, or if you need to go, we can cut it in a few minutes. I'd love for you to come back and talk about the next part of the phase of this and the life and all that you've created out of the devastation that you you know, experienced, you created miraculous things from that. And I don't want to leave, I don't want to cut it, cut this short or leave that out. So can you, should we, can, can we continue this? Uh, or would you like to come back? We can continue for a few if you would like. Fantastic. So thank you for doing this both. Um, I really thank do appreciate you. it. So thank let's you. talk about now you're, you're basically out of the apartment. You're living in a hotel. And, Jean, you're kind of working at the offices of Bank of America. At this point, are you doing any of the recovery effort, Dan, or are you, like, now on sick leave? Because you had, you were injured from the first collapse of the tower, correct? You had, uh, you right, needed yeah. surgery on your leg. Okay, well, so you needed uh, surgery they, on they your leg. Us, or? 
they wanted to um, surgery on my back. I had okay. uh, three herniated discs, and the uh, discs were impinging against my spine, and that was causing my left leg to uh, to um, uh, have damage in in that the, the nerves in my left leg. And uh, there were times where um, I in the hotel I couldn't couldn't get out of bed, and um, and when I could, I would go to the medical office, and then uh, when I, if I didn't have to do that, I would go down to the to the site. Um, wow. you, I, I, I did recovery work. Uh, first of all, first couple of days after uh, after the trade center, because uh, I knew I was injured, I knew I was hurting, but I didn't realize the extent of my injuries, and um, I was going to be certainly not going to be going down to the medical office to complain about. I was just happy that uh, I was able to to still move, and I would go down to the trade center site, and it wasn't until. Uh, toward the end of the month that I said um, I, one day I couldn't get out of bed and I realized that there was, there's got to be a little bit something more here and that's when I went down to the fire department medical office and they started sending me for testing and they realized that the the damages that I had and I mean emotionally for the workers, were they providing therapy and counseling for you guys? I mean, what you experienced was just unspeakable. I think that what was going on was, yeah, they, they tried to have stress offices, but nobody was even at that point at that time. Just the overwhelming magnitude of the loss of firefighters and um, and just, you know, trying to run the fire department business, business day, it was just overwhelming. And... Um, Nobody wanted to sit down and talk about it. We just we knew we had a job to do. There were still possibilities of people or firefighters that could be trapped in a pocket, and that was our concern. We wanted to just make sure we can get down and, and do whatever we have to do first before we worry about anything about ourselves, and that that was the common theme through almost every rescue worker. Let's, let's get business done, and uh, without, we weren't worried about ourselves because, you know what, we're alive, and... Um, we're just going to have to take care of those that that need our help at this point, and that was the focus. And most of the time, we just operated on adrenaline. And I'll tell you who I definitely appreciate was there was times where um, uh, civilians would walk through uh, with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, that were made by kids, and they were they were in plastic, and they would hand them out to us because we would just be working and not even realize that we haven't even eaten. And uh, mm. I've had some of the best peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in all my life down there at the site. <laughs> and there was other workers that would just walk by with a bottle of water, and they would just stop you and they just let me rinse your eyes out, and they you know, they let us allow us to rinse our eyes out. So the whole focus was just to, to was rescue at that time, and um, there was no time for us to worry about uh, our injuries. And, and your generosity of spirit is what inspired the rest of us, and that's why everybody, I remember my, I was frantic, wanting to do something, you know, wanted to, wanting to help in some way, and although I took, you know, uh, people in uh, overnight that couldn't make it home or, you know, from, from living down where you guys lived or, you know, my nieces who were kind of trapped in school, um, in addition to that, I remember running to the firehouse saying, what can I do? I have a little bit of space, you know, if you need an extra room because all uh, firefighting volunteers and police from all over the country 
were showing up in New York City to assist. But you guys and women were the ones that inspired that because who you were being in the face of all this adversity uh, just well, I'll tell you, it's the New York City Fire Department and New York City Police Department and the other first responders, uh, you know, we're, we're the best trained in the world. And, um, we're, you know, there is such dedication uh, of my colleagues that I work with. And people ask me to, to this day, do you think if they knew that these towers were to come down, would they, would they do this again? And I can honestly say, yeah, absolutely. You would find each guy, you would find Mike Wakola. Uh, that that dies in in the stairwell helping a woman, you would find Mike Wakol in that same staircase. And my my good friend Brian Hickey, that was a captain of uh, Rescue Four, they found him in. Uh, well, they they didn't find him, but he was in the South Tower. Brian would be in the same position he would be, and so would all the other firefighters. Because many of the firefighters they knew that day that this could be the, their last run, and um, without hesitation, um, firefighters and police officers, you know, just just kept moving forward, and would they do this again today? Without a doubt, absolutely. Well, like I, I mean, that kind of confirms my statement of, of um, saying that, you know, what I witnessed from all of you was, was really a, a ringside seat to the best part of humanity. And tell us what this experience, you know, has led you to discover in terms of the new life you had to recreate for yourself. Where are you guys now? Well, first, thank you for for giving honor to the first responders, Kathy, because as I say, 16 to 17,000 of us survived that day due to the heroic efforts of the first responders and civilians helping other civilians. So I'm just so grateful that you are honoring them, you know, not not to sound self-serving to my husband, but... You know, I mean, 16 to 17,000 of us survived. That's a lot of people. Um, and where are we now? We are in Boris Valley, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, my husband continues doing God's work and fire services, although he'll not um, hands-on, more of an administrative level. And uh, I counsel women who are incarcerated and uh, been busy with the book and... We'll see what you also are you still fundraising for the Red Cross as well? Yeah, we do some. He is the disaster services manager for the Red Cross, so it's more um, hands-on fundraising is now being done. Uh, he could tell you in a different area. We've been a uh, he's had his hands full <laughs> with disaster services actually. Well, Dan, you're training volunteer firefighters as well. You developed. I'm just, I, I think these are notes I made from your book, Dean. You developed some uh, fire safety courses for the senior community, disaster services manager for the Red Cross for Pike and Wayne counties, and you're the training coordinator for fire, EMS, and first responders for Pike County. <laughs> yeah, we're, I, I mean, wear some different hats up here. Um, I, I, was a, I um, did create some courses uh, uh, while we were in Westchester County, for senior fire safety because of uh seniors do um die in fires uh in a more more so than um regular age other um other age people and they're more susceptible to dying fires and so I did a program on that that I went around to different senior organizations and made presentations for fire safety with that and uh the Red Cross asked me about three four years ago if I would 
like to volunteer my time to be the, the disaster manager for the Wayne and Pike counties here in Pennsylvania. And in doing so, I, I did that. And my, like I said, my hands were um, uh, hands were busy with the hurricane Irene that just came through here recently. And then um, in Pike County, they're designing a, um, a twelve million dollar firefighter training complex. And I was asked by the county commissioners if I could uh, coordinate programs for the volunteer firefighters, and I said I can I can fit that in and, and do that. So, so that kind of keeps me busy my day to day business goals. I, I am humbled by both of you and the amazing work that you both do and how you contribute, and you're of service, you know, 24/7 to the world. You're just two of the most extraordinary people I know, and. Um, I, I also wanted to add that um, what, or, or ask you, what would you guys like to share that we didn't cover today? Is there anything else you need to bring up or, or discuss? Because I really want to make sure that, you know, you have that opportunity as well. Well, in, in terms of the book, what is important to me uh, is that we are donating a portion of the proceeds to the Wounded Warrior Project and the Feel Good Foundation, you know. And, I mean, it's so important that we honor those who perished that day and that we must never forget what happened. And um, my heartfelt thank you to my co-author, Rob Kaplan, who just did an incredible job in taking my manuscript and our story. He, he just knew what we wanted to convey with our book and um, it's just we must never forget you know and, and that we're so grateful for, for the the new chance at life that God gave us 10 years ago you know I and agree, agree with that I, I think sure. uh, Jean has written such a beautiful book uh, reflecting and with just inspirational hopes and my other thought would be that we need to remember that day how all Americans we came we became united we became one, and how proud we were to be Americans at that time. I, I agree with you, and how the the spirit of the people, as I mentioned at the top of the program, especially in New York, which is known for being a tough town, and you really have to get to know people to kind of, you know, get them to let out that soft sweet spot that we know we all have. But, I mean, it was just amazing to live in the city after those days because everyone had tremendous generosity of spirit that was, of course, inspired by you guys. And and then, unfortunately, it didn't last. And I wish that, you know, that we all take a moment to pause and remember, like you're saying, Dan, remember that, hey, we were there. We did it. We, we connected. And we did, Kathy. We, we came together as a country. Okay. There were people trying yes, to do whatever yes. they can do. They donated blood, and they went and they, they prayed, and they, they held vigils. But across this whole country, not you know, not just New York, but just this whole country, we just became so united in in our thought and in our, um, our strength to uh, become better Americans. Mm-hmm. You're you're right about that, and that would serve us again if we could come together and do that again during these you know trying times. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to thank you both. I mean, you you really are so inspiring. And Jean, do you have any book signings coming up that we can tell people about? No, because I've been so busy with interviews. 
Well, I would love to, if, you know, I'm I'm going to put the word out there myself. I would love to. I think it would be so important for people to be able to have a chance to meet you and, you know, to have your book signed. I, I treasure it. Um, I will be at the front of the line. And uh, I think it would be a wonderful opportunity, you know, for you to for you both to hear what, you know, the book means to people who read it and, and just, you know, for people to, uh, you know, appreciate uh, the experience that went, you went through and that you you not only, you know, kind of survived it, but you had this amazing generosity of spirit to share it with all of us. And um, I just, I can't thank you enough. Um, I want, I don't want to end the program, but yet I know <laughs> we have to. I, I would like to keep tabs on you both, and I hope that, you know, you'll come back from time to time. Uh, because I would love to follow your progress and and uh, you know just find out what else you're up to because I know you're always up to fantastic things in the world. And so, this is Kathy Barrett thanking Jean and Dan Potter for being the amazing people that they are. I'm uh, full of gratitude for them coming on the program today, and uh, I just want to remind everybody to make time on September 11th to pause and reflect on what we learned from the day and to honor the innocent that were taken from us and those that may have survived but still suffer from physical injury or emotional injuries. Let's just take a moment, like Dan said, on September 11th and collectively generate healing and peaceful thoughts together. Let us become those strangers in a crowd in a country with connecting hearts beating as one. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. This is Kathy Barrett sending you a virtual hug from behind the curtain. I'll be back next week, and I hope you'll join me. 